listeners and thank you for joining us for another episode of big talk i'm alex ashkin your guest host for this evening and i am joined by professor richard wilk professor how are you doing today i'm doing great it's great to talk to you alex one of the things that you've become relatively well known for is uh your work in food anthropology as a particular subset of applied anthropology. I got an opportunity to sit down with one of your books, Rice and Beans, A Unique Dish in 100 Places, which you, along with Livia Barbosa, edited. First of all, is an avid food and cultural act. I shouldn't call myself an academic, but somebody who loves to read that sort of stuff. It was a real delight. It actually opened me up to a few new ideas and other academics who've been evolving these thoughts over the past decades, if not century. There was actually a really unique passage that stuck out to me. This basic cultural identity is rarely grounded in an individual ingredient, but instead in what Mary Douglas calls the grammar of a dish which includes the fundamental ingredients, recipes, flavors, and textures. It is this persistence that can make food such an important tool in tracing cultural histories, helping us understand how a group of cultures may be related to one another through common origins and shared experiences. And this is derived from Mary Douglas's article, Deciphering a Meal, in the 1971 book, Miss Symbol and Culture. What does this grammar of a dish help us sort of see both the culture and also sort of the creative side of food? Why is it important for academics like yourself to help spread this message along? Well, that's a a huge question. From my experience as a college professor, I could probably talk about it for two hours without <laughs> notes and then even just scratch the surface. Uh, but I'll try, to, I'll try to kind of relate it to some things that are going on in our own contemporary culture right now. And that is this question of authenticity and the question of origins and who owns a cuisine Who does it belong to? Right now, we have a lot of people questioning the origins of American food, and particularly African-American food and Native American foods. And people are, are actively trying to rediscover their heritage, trace their roots, and anchor their identity, who they are, in tradition of cooking using particular Mm -hmm. ingredients. In a lot of parts of the world, people are thinking that the past is a place they can go to get inspiration. Yet, at the same time, we know that cuisines are always changing, always adopting new things, always adapting new ingredients. 
And the question of authenticity is usually a, a dead end. You know, trying to figure out who cooked the first oysters Rockefeller <laughs> or who invented French fries or whatever. Those kinds of quests always end up taking you into a kind of ambiguous territory with a lot of different claims and nobody really with secure knowledge. And we also have this issue that unlike most kinds of intellectual property, you cannot copyright a recipe, which means that anybody can copy a published recipe and call it their own. So on one hand, cuisine is really important to people's claims about who they are, and people really resent having someone else come along from another ethnic group, perhaps, and say, come up with French tacos, which are apparently a thing now, and which, you know, to a lot of Mexicans seems like cultural appropriation. You know, mm -hmm. these people are stealing our food and making a fortune selling it for selling French tacos for $20 a pop when we can barely get $3 uh, for our real authentic tacos. This kind of thing happens all the time when it comes to food. Even the United Nations, uh, UNESCO has a, a program for what they call intangible cultural property, where nations are registering their possession of a particular cuisine. So actually, when I was teaching in Singapore a couple of years ago, Singapore decided to claim a couple of dishes as their own. And immediately, people a couple of miles away in Malaysia said, no, those aren't your foods. They're our foods, and we make them better, and we sell them cheaper. People should come and eat ours. So food is always this kind of ambiguous property, and it, it also has this uh, ability to grab our emotions. Powerful memories come out when you talk with people about food. It's one of the things that makes studying food so fascinating mm -hmm. because it, it leads to so many other aspects of people's lives. It leads to fascinating conversations. You know, why do you hate eating <laughs> the crusts of bread, whereas you <laughs> like the whites? You know, why are some kids completely uh, averse to eating vegetables here in the United States, whereas in other countries, there's no problem. It leads to our psychology. It leads to our culture. It leads to politics. And it does all these things with a lot of emotional weight. Now, anthropologists and historians in the old days used to be the people who came along and decided who was real and who was authentic. You know, the history of the taco, let's trace it back to this original group of people. And it has a very different complexion when it's outsiders coming in and telling you how you should be eating or outsiders coming in and say, 
copying your recipes or publishing a book that has all of your recipes in it. If you're a very powerful group of people, if you're dominant, that doesn't seem like appropriation. Mm -hmm. That just seems like mixing. Whereas if you're a minority, if you feel downtrodden, uh, if you feel like you're being discriminated against and you lack opportunity, you could really resent it when people come and um, take your recipes or uh, start producing your ingredients, the, the crops that your ancestors have been tending for 10,000 years. And suddenly it turns into a mass market thing, say like quinoa, which my student Emma McDonald uh, studied for her dissertation. People in Peru can barely afford to eat it anymore because it became so popular. And now they grow it here in the U.S. So a lot of poor farmers in uh, Peru can no longer get a good price for their quinoa. So I think a lot depends on which end of the stick you're looking at. If you're the one holding the stick, it feels really different from uh, you're the person who's getting hit with the stick. And I think that's something that... Um, Anthropologists and archaeologists have learned that we really have to be careful about other people's property. Just to get our listeners acquainted with you, uh, you are the now retired professor from IU, uh, where you earned a title of Professor Emeritus of Anthropology, specializing particularly in economic, cultural, and applied anthropology. Additionally, you are the founder and director of the Open Anthropology Institute, also the author of countless articles, several books, including stuff like Home Cooking in the Global Village, Caribbean Food from Buccaneers to Ecotourists, Economies and Cultures, Foundations of Economic Anthropology, and so much more. Before we dive in any further, is there anything else you would like our listeners to know about you? <laughs> well, I started my career as an archaeologist, deeply, deeply interested in uh, ancient Mayan culture. And that's what got me to working in Central America to begin with. But I very quickly kind of shifted from studying dead people to studying live people. But then I married an archaeologist, so we have a kind of family division of labor. Yeah, she does dead people and I do live people. Talking about your academic history, you graduated cum laude from NYU in 1974 with a BA in anthropology. And then you went to University of Arizona, where you earned your master's in 1976 and a PhD in 1981 kind of looked like you started off originally, you know, digging around in Spain and Israel a bit before making that transition to anthropology. Is it really kind of fair to view anthropology and archaeology as sort of sister studies or almost two sides of the same coin? Well, there is a saying that started in anthropology when I was a graduate student, which was that archaeology is anthropology or it's nothing. But in Europe, archaeology and 
anthropology are separate disciplines, usually separate departments, and they don't necessarily talk to each other. Whereas here in the USA, we have a much longer history together, and most archaeologists work in an anthropology department. Here in the U.S., it was much easier to move from one to another or back and forth across the boundary. Some archaeologists study living people as a way of understanding the past. And my wife, Anne Pyburn, who's also an IU uh, anthropology professor, has kind of pioneered the study of how people today think about the past and how heritage is important in people's understanding of themselves and their, their identity and in everyday politics. Uh, so in some ways, the two fields have grown together in uh, much more intimate ways, not just in our household, but in the, uh, in the country at large. And I've always thought that was a really positive thing because I've never been a great respecter of disciplinary boundaries. I think they get in the way as often as they actually help people along. That's the way universities are structured, and sometimes they're kind of separated off in their own little intellectual silo, and they don't talk to anybody else. Whereas I've always gotten a lot of inspiration from talking with people as diverse as engineers, art historians, ancient historians. You know, if you look at my CV, you'll see that I published in sociology journals and political science journals and um, energy journals, uh, kind of all over the place. You know, as Anne has been arguing for 30 years, when we take other people's heritage and stick it in our museums, we don't necessarily respect the people it came from. When it turns out we have thousands of skeletons of dead Native Americans uh, sitting around in a storeroom. Mm -hmm. So people are getting more and more aware of the kind of imbalances in, in power when it comes to cultural property, and food is right there in the middle of it. That's actually a fascinating point, because the idea of cultural identity and food and its ability to evoke intense memories, both deeply personal and collectively shared, has been well documented for years now. Simultaneously, you raise a really interesting point in the discussion of cultural appropriation, because a lot of these foods today, even in your book uh, about rice and beans, there's some discussion of creolization, that in certain contexts there is sort of uh, a forced commingling of different cultures that creates these new dishes. To go back to your book, I'm going to quote you again. Uh-oh. <laughs> in many countries and regions where people eat rice and beans, the dish is a tangible symbol of identity, a basic part of what identifies people as members of a larger group. Going on, the sight, smell, and taste of a dish stand for a whole set of deep meanings and memories that have a powerful affect. They evoke loyalty, sentimentality, 
even passion. So how does this creolization, particularly of rice and beans, create a special shared memory for all these disparate groups? And in a way, is this similar to a lot of the discussion that like Marcel Proust first brought up in uh, Remembrance of the Past when he talked about the Madeline, the cookie uh, that he longed for of his childhood? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think it goes right to the heart of this contradiction between our sense of authenticity and the fluidity of cuisine and uh, constant reinterpretation. In fact, we could cook Madeleines today, but how would we know if they tasted the same as the ones that Proust ate in the late 1800s? Mm -hmm. There's actually no preservation of food from <laughs> 200 years ago. I was so disappointed when I went to the website of the Food Museum in upstate New York. Hmm. Turns out they, they empty out the cans and the containers because they don't want it to spoil. Uh, so really what they're keeping alive is just the containers. Nobody really knows what even what wine tasted like 100 years ago. The substance of food is always changing. It's always blending. There are people appropriating it. And we tried to get at that in talking about rice and beans because it does have a history. Yet, people have an ability to tag the things in their own memory and in their own community which evoke this sense of identity and closeness it can give them a sense that the way other people are making rice and beans is just wrong. One of the papers in that book talks about the boundary between Costa Rica and Nicaragua and how both countries now have rice and beans festivals. But both countries feel like rice and beans is really our dish. And these foreigners, you know, they do it wrong. They use the wrong beans or they cook it too long or they you know in some places you got to put coconut milk in your rice and beans if if you're in the caribbean but then you cross over into latin america and suddenly it, it's moros y cristianos you have black beans and white rice mixed together it's not just that people attach themselves to a particular version of a dish but part of the process of making people belong to a community is getting them to harmonize their tastes and their beliefs about food. Then when they think about it, they tend to think about, oh yeah, that's the way it's been since time immemorial. Yet, you know, just in my lifetime, American food has changed amazingly. Absolutely. You look here at Bloomington. When I first moved to Bloomington, in the late 80s, there was one Chinese restaurant in town. There were no real Mexican restaurants. It was Taco Bell. Just the diversity and richness. Again, when I was a teenager and we were sneaking off to drink beer, there was only light lager, low alcohol light lager. If you wanted a dark beer or something exotic, you might get a Lowenbrau or a Heineken. But the idea that there were plenty of dark beers and light beers, just the same way when I was a kid, it was white bread. 
that was about it. So in many ways, the vocabulary of eating in America has become richer and richer, but uh, people yearn for identity and solidarity through food as well as cosmopolitanness. It's kind of like being local at the same time you want to understand the global. And we have this kind of conflict that has arisen over the last few years in the United States, and you see it a lot of places where a lot of educated people feel like they're, they have left their traditions behind. They've become sophisticated consumers of a kind of global diet. But then you have a lot of people who are less fortunate who feel like those people are becoming foreigners. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not really sticking to their traditions anymore. And, and I think that contributes to the level of political division that we have in this country that's mirrored in a lot of other countries. You know, in some ways, these worlds of globalization and of the local are, have pulled apart. You know, part of my intellectual journey has been trying to understand how that happens and how those things can be put back together again in a way where they don't conflict with each other, where they, um, they harmonize, because they really are two parts of the same process. The global gives people an appetite for the local. Mm -hmm. The kind of constrictions of the local gives people an appetite for the global. And those two kind of work uh, through each other rather than in t they don't stand at like the positive and negative poles of a battery. Economic forces tend to be that primary driver of this experience, namely market capitalism. In a brief discussion we had previously off air, you actually had an interesting comment, which was market capitalism is like a fractal. It has infinite levels of complexity. And you said you tried to map a market of fishing reels and their composite parts and found it nearly impossible to kind of get at all the individual producers and groups that would create the individual reels and lines and so on. And it actually reminded me of a quote I heard growing up. A foreign exchange student comes to... Bloomington in the early 2000s. I think they were living in rural Bordeaux originally. And they said, you know, the biggest difference between America and France is the salad dressing aisle of the supermarket. <laughs> we have about three salad dressings, you know, perhaps a red wine vinaigrette, olive oil and vinegar, and, you know, perhaps some sort of creamy dressing. If you're feeling, you know, adventurous. Whereas we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different recipes and formulations and variation on variation. How much do you think that this sort of desire to consume and find something new pushes out our traditions? And when does it codify into new ones? There's an existential question for you. 
I, I I'm interested that you that you kind of point to the supermarket because um, I I at times have said that the supermarket is the supreme artifact of modern America. It's it's kind of the narrative that tells us about ourselves going into that going into any large supermarket. There's about forty thousand different products in your average supermarket. And I've been sending my students to supermarkets for years to, you know, sometimes just a voyage of discovery. Can you find a breakfast cereal that does not have added sugar in it? How many names can you find for sugar? There's over 300 in the formulary books that, uh, that grocers and food scientists work off of. There is a tendency in capitalism to market to smaller and smaller segments. Marketers, I've spent a lot of time with people in consumer research and marketing in business schools. They think of, of a population as divided into segments, often by zip codes, you know, and they give names to these little segments, you know, the young up-and-comers, with one foot in the rural area, the cosmopolitan middle class. They've learned that if you want to sell a product, identify a segment and market to that segment. Mm -hmm. So people interested in like the healthy qualities of olive oil. Well, go to your average supermarket aisle and you'll see like 20 different kinds of olive oil maybe 25 or 30 different kinds of olive oil. When I was a kid, you were lucky if you could find any olive oil in an American supermarket. You usually had to go to like an Italian deli to find olive oil. So what marketers have found is that you can subdivide and subdivide and subdivide. So we're, we're aiming for, you know, gay people in their 30s. We're aiming for a uh, well-educated urban Asian population. And by targeting that particular market, you continually divide people from each other. So the whole principle becomes getting people to identify with particular goods and then breaking those goods into smaller and smaller categories. I wrote a paper about 30 years ago saying, where does this take us? If you think about it, if you start to think about dividing a population into smaller and smaller segments, where's the collective? Where's the interest group that's above your particular family or your particular ethnic group or your particular segment on the income scale? And I think it has a detrimental effect in some ways by, uh, by dividing ourselves from each other into ever smaller tribes. La, 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 la. Join us next week, same time, same station, for part two of Alex Ashkin's conversation with Indiana University anthropology professor emeritus Richard Wilk. He's talking about food. This is Big Talk.